You're listening to an all-new episode of Self-Made Strategies. Visit selfmadestrategies.com for new episodes, information about our guests, and a whole lot more. Welcome to episode 114 of the Self-Made Strategies podcast. Our guest on this episode is Klaus Rosted. He's an innovation strategist and has been pushing the limits of possibility for 20 years. He serves as the director for the College of Extraordinary Experiences, is a coach at McKinsey, and releases a daily innovation keynote on his YouTube channel. He's a prolific author with 30 books to his name and has just finished The Innovation Cycle. Rosted also has a past in reality TV, but these days, who hasn't? You can find Klaus Rosted, of course, by searching Google for him. He has a pretty solid digital footprint. You can find him on LinkedIn to reach out to him. You can also go to Extraordinary.College to check out the College of Extraordinary Experiences. On this episode, we're going to talk about how extraordinary experiences can improve the experiences that your clients or other stakeholders are having and how that can help catapult your business to new levels. As usual, you can now check this episode out on our YouTube channel in addition to your favorite podcast listening app. If you visit us on our YouTube channel or wherever you enjoy your podcasts, please subscribe to the show and leave us a review. Here are the self-made strategies of Klaus Rosted. Hey, Klaus, how you doing? Hello, Tony. Nice to meet you. Likewise. Likewise. Thank you. All right. So really excited to get to know you and to talk about the College of Extraordinary Experiences. Really cool concept. I love this. So you, your organization meets in a castle, right? This is true. This is our, our big yearly event is in a medieval castle in Poland. So cool. So cool. And that's extraordinary.college for those who are looking to check out the uh College of Extraordinary Experiences. Pretty cool. So uh, we'll dive right in. How do you pronounce the castle's name? Chioka Castle? Close enough. It's Choha. Choha. Cho- Choha. I need more of a uh, a guttural throat sound there, right? Exactly. exactly. <laughs> you were close enough. Close. Not, not too bad. For an American, not too shabby. Choha Castle in Poland is where the College of Extraordinary Experiences meets. The event this year is September 13th through the 17th of 2021 in Poland. You can request an invitation by going to extraordinary.college. Uh, And that is the URL that you can go to to look for and apply to be someone, uh, be one of the participants of the College of Extraordinary Experiences. So today we're talking with the director of the College of Extraordinary Experiences, Klaus Rosted. Super excited to meet you. Thank you so much for being here. Obviously, you're joining us remotely and you're right now you're in France. You're in Paris, I think. We can pretend I am. It sounds good. But the reality (laughs) is that in the Baltic Sea, there's a small island called Bonholm, part of Denmark where I live. So not exactly Paris, but (laughs) a thousand kilometers or so from there. But I can have a Parisian vibe. There you go. I can put on some soft French music and then we're there. Awesome. Awesome. So cool. So at the College of Extraordinary Experiences, almost 100 people from all over the world come together for five days to explore the realm of experience design. Uh, and obviously you call people to adventure on your website. Again, that's extraordinary.college forward slash hashtag call dash to dash adventure. If you're looking to to join these awesome individuals in a castle in Poland for five days. So tell us how you came up with the idea 
for the College of Extraordinary Experiences. So let's travel back five years and we're on a plane from Abu Dhabi in the Middle East to Prague in the Czech Republic. And on that plane are two guys, me and Paul Bulencha, my co-founder, and we're talking about how to change the world. Because of course, that's what you do on a flight home from Abu Dhabi after a business trip. And Paul says, we should do something about tourism conferences. Because Paul comes from the world of tourism, wrote a book on gamification and tourism. Absolutely brilliant. And, and he says, tourism conferences are all in nice locations. There's good food. The speakers are boring to good. And then you exchange some business cards and that's that. I say, okay, let's, what do we do? How do we make a more interesting conference? And throughout our conversation, we expand from tourism to experience design as a more broad category. And then we start thinking about this interdisciplinary issue of experience and of innovation. And what we come up with are two premises that are key for the college. One of them is, and it's not, it's not our insights. It's, we just put it together in this way. And that is the one premise is that if you put people together who are the same, 50 doctors, 50 filmmakers, 50 bricklayers, 50 podcast hosts, and you create a good environment, you will have incremental innovation. You'll say, oh, I use this microphone, or we do this with our guests, or have you considered that, or what about a four-person hosting? And you'll have people being inspired, and you'll have things getting a little bit better and, and trying out new things. That's great. But if you want radical innovation, then you need to get people who are radically different. You need to have the homeless guy meet the CEO, the circus performer meet the, the bank executive, the people who run an airline talk with the jazz musician, et cetera. And the college is that. It's bringing those different people together from all over the world, different cultures, different walks of life, different stratas of society, different backgrounds, different ways of thinking. So that's premise number one. Premise number two is that when we get together with people who are strange, we're not good at that. So we look at them, we sit down at that table with the, the Formula One race car driver and the, the street artist from Venezuela. And then we sit there and think, you're too weird. You're too different. You're too artsy. You're too corporate. You're too French. You're not enough in Paris. And, and then we, we kind of, we, we guard, we hold back. So we thought if we can create an experience for these people, bring together this highly curated gathering and create an experience for them, a kind of a special magical realm of a world that's different that they can enter. Also physically, it's in a castle, right? It's like stepping into a Harry Potter movie. Then when they finally sit down and have that conversation, whether it's at dinner or at 4 a.m. in the secret dungeon bar, then they will have open hearts and open minds. And then that's when the ideas will flow. And people will not say that's weird, but tell me more. That's the college in a nutshell. Super cool. I love this idea. And uh, just looking at some of the people that you have coming, you have your 2021 participants listed on your website. You can go again to extraordinary.college to check this out. You have Krista Dalby, who's an artistic director for the Department of Illumination. Then you have individuals like uh, some authors in here. You have CEO Vera Katharina Schneider, CEO of Beyond Play. You have other people. You have someone, Grace Kim, senior producer from Apple, joining you. You have uh, other people from uh, Heather Reese, founder of Amplify Productions, for example. So you do have some really interesting people from different backgrounds. And I don't, I agree with you. I agree with you wholeheartedly. We do not have enough uh, variation in all of our organizations globally. And a lot of times that's how you end up with issues like 
groupthink. You end up with issues where people don't see problems from different perspectives, right? That's how the Boeing uh, Max crashes all happened, quite frankly, was poor design thinking, right? They didn't see that there was issues with the uh, attack angle sensors and other sensors on the plane. And had they had some other creatives from different backgrounds and not just the engineers looking at this and not just the numbers people, the business people looking at this to be able to say, hey, maybe we should look at this from a different perspective. The design of this thing looks flimsy. Maybe we could have avoided some some things like that. So super interesting how you've done this. And I couldn't agree with you more. I uh, am an attorney full time. That's that's my gig on a normal basis. I own and run my own practice. But I do things like this. I do creative things. I get involved in creative productions. I do the podcast. I get to meet really cool people like you. And that helps me to expand my brain and then think about my clients' problems from a different perspective and hopefully makes me a better attorney. I think this is a really cool concept. So what are some of the outcomes that you're looking for? What are some of the the things that you want to see the participants and the people who are involved in this growing to from day one to day five, for example? So the real strength, I mean, if people have a personal journey or they come, they gain new mindsets or new tools, that's great. That's part of it. But we can't guarantee that because what's new to one person will be old hack to another. Right. But what really is the strength of it? It's the networks. It's the ripple effect. It's let's say you go there and somebody sits down and it's the first time in their life they have a serious conversation with an attorney where they get really nitty gritty. And you come up with something where they say, wow. I'm going to do my theater productions differently, not because of the legal stuff, but simply because how do you approach clients? How do you look at things like confidentiality, things that in your world are completely normal, but they've never been there and vice versa. Maybe you add a little bit of sparkle and razzle dazzle to the office when people come into your place. So so the, the ripple effect and the projects that happen afterwards are the real strength of the thing. And I love that you mentioned the Boeing crash. I don't know enough about it, uh, according to what I would. But one thing I remember is they didn't tell the pilots there was this steering mechanism. If I'd been there and somebody said, we come up with this great way to enhance the way to, to fly the frame, this wire frame flying, yada, yada. I'd say, what about we at least tell the pilots? And nobody did. So part of it was the pilots were in situations where the system was oversteering in a way they didn't anticipate, and they didn't even know there was a system. That's, to me, the most crazy part. Not that it failed. Things fail. But that they didn't even tell the main people involved, so here's this tool. You now have a, you now have a manual gear, and we're not going to tell you, like, what? That, that's to me, that's just crazy. And if they just talk to somebody who had been from a different place, as you say, maybe a trapeze artist from a circus, he'd have said, yeah. If we put slippery grips on them, that's fine. I just want to know. Right. Great point. So when we're talking about experiential design thinking, right, which is what you started the College of Extraordinary Experiences to do, just to explain to the individuals who are listening, basically what we're talking about is some form of user experience in your own projects, like you said. So whether you have a lawyer or an author or someone who's in film production or someone who's the CEO of a major company or someone who's in a tech startup, the idea is to bring a bunch of different people from different backgrounds into the room to help you think about, oh, I never thought of things from this perspective, but these individuals are out there, so maybe I should incorporate some of this thinking into my 
ultimate experience with my own stakeholders, whoever they are, clients, customers, whatever that is. So can you elaborate on that a little bit? You know, what are you looking to teach the individuals who come and how do you facilitate that type of learning experience? So, so let's start a different place because I, I, I nicely put product design, the design of products. You look at things like, how do you make it safe? How do you make it cheap? How do you make it sustainable? How do you make it nice looking? All that sorts of things. If you're looking, that's nice. If you're looking at service design, you're looking, how do we make it effective? How do we make it robust? How is it stable? That sort of thing. If you're looking at experience design, you're thinking of how do we make the experience of engaging with it better? There's a lovely study about hospitals, which shows that if you go in and have a hospital procedure, let's say you're getting your spleen removed or something crazy, there's going to be a level of pain. And you're going to report a level of pain if somebody asks you, is it a 9 or a 10 on a 1 to 10 scale? What's the level of pain? This is just part of having a painful procedure. Now, the studies also show that if you are allowed to bring a person with you who cares about you, not just a random stranger in a corner, but somebody, your sister, your mother, your children, your, your whoever, then that level of perceived pain is reduced. Your brain registers less pain because you're not alone. And if you're allowed to hold their hand, then it's even less. So something like, how do you make a spleen uh, removal better? I don't know anything about surgery. I'm not going to walk into some doctor's office and say, hey, Here's how you do it better, Mac. I don't know about that. But what I can say is I can say, maybe there's something we can do with the lighting. Maybe there's something we can do with the language. Maybe with the greeting. Maybe with the way you hold meetings in your doctor team when you're looking at new procedures. Maybe there's something in the documentation. There are all sorts of things that are not the thing itself, but things attached to it. And that's that's where experience design is powerful. It's not changing the thing you do. It's changing the things around it. So the experience changes. Right. And quite frankly, to your point, a lot of times, again, we're not thinking about these things, right? Lawyers, most of the time, don't really think about their bedside manner, for example. We all know that's the truth, right? So quite frankly, a lot of lawyers could do with thinking about what your customer or your client's experience is. And a lot of times, especially in the legal community, and I speak from that perspective because that's where a lot of my interactions obviously come from. Um But a lot of times in the legal industry, you'll hear lawyers say, well, yeah, my clients don't care if I'm a nice guy or not or a nice woman or not. They care about whether or not I can, you know, provide them with the legal advice. No, that's the standard. They walk in the door with the expectation that you as a legal professional are going to provide them with the legal advice, but you still provide them with some experience. And if you don't think you're providing them with an experience, you're probably providing them with a pretty crappy one, most likely, right? Because you're not thinking about all these things. So at the end of the day, whether your client walks out feeling like regardless of how bad whatever situation brought them to look for an attorney is or was, you still can make them have at least an enjoyable experience in your office, for example, right? And the whole environment speaks to that. The whole experience is part of that. Same goes for engineers. I have a lot of friends who are engineers, for example, most of them very technical thinkers, obviously, right? They think about a problem in sort of this systematic kind of way, in a schematic kind of way, and they come up with technical solutions and they could be the brightest engineer on the planet, but if they don't have great people skills and don't make their stakeholders, whoever they are, other engineers, collaborators, vendors, people that you're working with, clients, have a good experience, you're going to start to fall down by the wayside with 
the competition of other engineers out there, and quite frankly, in a globalized community, you have to think about these things. You have to have multidisciplinary skills and be strong in all of those levels to really provide an awesome experience, right? Because end of the day, whether or not they make a recommendation or not can make or break your business, right? We all know that. So what to you are sort of the best practices just at a 30,000 foot view? I don't need you to give away the farm or your secret sauce, of course, but to you over the years that you've done this, what are sort of the things that you look at and you say, these are must have best practices if you want to provide stakeholders a good experience? So I'll answer it with a story. It's a, it's a failing of mine, uh, but this is one of my favorites. My girlfriend, who is also the, the mother of our daughter, um, so we not just have a house in common, but also a tornado of energy, and she's <laughs> an illustrator. And, but she has a degree in uh, like a master's degree in communication. And when she got that at the University of Copenhagen some years back, then some of the people she'd been studying with came and said, oh, you're delivering your master's thesis. Then you're going to get your Smurf. And she's like, I'm going to get my what? I'm handing in my master's thesis. And they said, yeah, yeah. So you're going to get your Smurf. And she's like, I, I don't, what does that mean? So it turns out at the university, at her faculty where she was, there was a woman in the administration. I think her name is Alice or something like that. And she decided, she thought, okay, these young people, when they hand in their, their dissertation, they've spent their thesis, they've spent uh, five, six months, 11 months, one and a half year on writing this thing. It's been a huge thing. It's going to be their exam paper for graduating with a master's degree. So it's a big thing in their world. And then what is that? What does that look like? They just come in, they drop it off digitally, they send it via mail, or then they dropped it off in writing at somebody's desk in a boring administration room. And she thought there's this super important moment in their life and nobody cares. There's nothing about it. So what did she do? She went out and she bought some Smurfs, these small blue guys, very cheap. She bought them at some sort of uh, used junkyard sale. She bought, I don't know how many, and she put them in a drawer at her office. And then when people came in, when the students came in and they delivered, she said, good. So here's the thing. Now take a look at the drawer and pick your Smurf. Pick my Smurf. Pick the one that represents you right now. The one that represents you as you kind of hand this in. And people would still there like, oh, should it be this or this? And then they'd pick a Smurf. And then they take it home, and then it would be a thing that would remind them of that moment. And to begin with, it was just fun. But after a few years, it became an institution. And there were people who would cry when they picked their Smurf. People would have their Smurfs and still have them. And they would talk about picking your Smurf as a thing. And this woman, nobody told her to do it. Nobody paid her to do it. She just thought, I can add something to the experience at a crucial moment. That way of thinking of thinking where are there places where you can enhance, empower, enrich? Where can you do that? And it doesn't have to cost money. It doesn't have to cost time. It just has to cost the thinking about it and the actual doing it. That, that to me, is, is the, the best practice and the way of thinking that instead of looking at the obvious, look, at, look around and see, okay, how can we, what can we do this? What can we do that's fun? What can we do that's different? to help that experience. That's amazing. I love, love, love that story. I might steal something like that and, and start to provide my clients with some form of a legal smurf, yeah. if you will, if you if you reach the culmination point of whatever your legal matter is. That's such a cool story. And you're right. And you can see in that story, and hopefully anyone who's listening to this 
is smiling a little bit to themselves. I smiled a little bit when you got to that sort of you know, precipice of this story of getting your Smurf and you can kind of put yourself in the moment of that individual who's faced that year and a half of turmoil and trying to reach this pinnacle of of attaining this this high level degree of coming to a, a, a culmination in their educational career. Such a cool, cool experience to be able to provide someone with that little trophy, like you said, that little trinket that you can always look at on your desk or wherever you keep it to remind you of the struggle that that you've overcome. Really, really cool. So going now to this experience at at your college, what can people expect each day that they're there? Do you have sort of a, a overall syllabus? Day one is this, day two is this, that people who are listening can kind of get a feel for what they'll experience? They cannot expect anything. And the reason for that is one, we design, we live design the event on the fly. So wow. part of it, we have plans, but we change it on the fly. We've woken up and said, we need to scrap the entire day because of what happened last night. And we've done so. We co-create with the participants. We create spaces and teach them how to use them. And then we set them free. So part of it is co-created. So we don't know what's going to go. We Some of the most powerful stuff that's happened has been participant created. And that's one thing. The second is we lie, we cheat, we manipulate. And we're very honest about that. Some of the things that happen that seem like they're coincidence, they're tightly designed. Some of the things that seem like they're tightly designed, they're just coincidence and we take credit for them. And you don't know what's what. And the reason we do that, and the reason we're so honest about that, and we let people peek behind the curtain, is because if anything could be a teaching moment, if anything could be important, then you always have like heightened senses. And, and sure, you're going to be exhausted after those five days. Don't do this for a year. But you're going to have random moments that teach you something. And, and there's, there's a story to illustrate that. Of course, there's a story. Uh, and that's one of our participants, French woman, actually, lovely person. And she came and said, Klaus, afterwards, after at, at the kind of the final night of, of one of the events, she came and said, Klaus, I need to know. There's a thing that happened. And I need to know, was it by design or was it coincidence? Because she'd come and then uh, during the check-in, we'd send her to her room, room 218, whatever. And she comes there and there's already two people and there's two beds. So she comes back and said, there's a mistake. And then I say, if she remembers me saying, oh, no, no, okay, we'll put you in this room instead. And then she goes to that room and there's not what she'd expected, but there's this older Scottish guy who's very much what she's not. And they hit it off amazingly. But that was because they were opposites, not because they were alike. And she said that was an experience she would never have had if she could have chosen it. But she felt it was perfect just for her, even with the struggle and the annoyance and the, the cold water in the morning. And she said, did you design that coincidence? Oh, we're just going to put you with this guy as a suitable thing so you can't complain because we're already fixing another problem. Or was that coincidence? And I said, we could have designed that. But in this case, it was just coincidence. But we could have designed something like that. And we do, we trick people and we make it obvious that we're tricking them because then they don't let their, they let their guard down to learning, but they don't just fall asleep. It's like if you're, if you're reading a book, you know, okay, this chapter is not going to be interesting. I might as well skip that or don't worry, leave the TV on when I go to the toilet during the movie because nothing's going to happen right now. We just had the big fight scene. We avoid that by saying you never know when the big fight scene is coming, when the, the peaks are coming, 
And we don't even know all the time. That's super cool. So it's kind of like jazz improvisation in a way, jazz improvisation in the sense that you're working with the people who are there and kind of adapting to their uniqueness as well. So for you, how do you ensure that you're bringing a valuable experience while balancing that creativity? I mean, at some point you have to have some sort of a formula that you stick to while improvising, of course. And just to be clear, a jazz improviser is able to improvise because of all the years and time of practice that they've put in, the skill set that they've developed, you know? So how did you develop that skill in this context? So we, we of course, have some formula, some things like opening the mat. We work with a lot of theory that we wrap together. So we work with the hero's journey framework. We work with the PERMA model from positive psychology. We use our three core methodology staging tools, rapid prototyping, co-creation, and flexible focus, which are kind of three key things at the college. We work with design thinking, with behavior design. I mean, we're well steeped in all sorts of theoretical babble that we then combine in mysterious ways. So there is some of that. And of course, some of it is there's an opening and, and there's a kind of get people into the, the special world and lead them by the hand, meet the mentor, that sort of thing. So, so we do use design tools, plenty of those, but we also make sure that there's room for jazz. Awesome. I think that's the the best way to put it. And then, of course, we do we use a lot of tricks from the live action role play sphere where I came from before, and that means that people have costumes. There are goblins. Like what professional conference has goblins? Well, we do. There are secret doors. There are treasure hunts. There are things happening that you may or may not be aware of. There's one of the things we we tell people at the beginning is. There's a lot of stuff happening here all the time. So you need to have the joy of missing out, or we call it the love of missing out, LOMO. Um, but it's the same thing that that you need to not worry about being at the right place. You need to be at the place you are because something will happen there. And that means we can let it go and we don't need to control it. We don't know how many secret room parties or weird workshops or or kind of a cultist chants are going on in the corners. And somebody will come afterwards and say, oh, that thing where the guys went like uh, naked bathing and did the shamanistic ritual in the forest. Wow, that was cool. And I say, tell me more because I have no idea what you're talking about. But we set the stage. <laughs> and, awesome. and that allows people to bring their creative best and their most interesting things to them. Then we have, I mean, we may be some organizers, but we have a hundred co-creators. Wow. That's incredible. So this is such a, a cool and unique thing because there's a meta aspect to this, obviously, right? Where you're teaching people design experience, design thinking. And at the same time, you're having to explore that with each and every one of these events. So now looking ahead, September of 2021 is a little bit down the road. Obviously, we don't know where we're going to be from a global pandemic perspective, but I'm curious how you've maintained this in the past last year with the COVID-19 pandemic and how you're looking at it from this year's perspective, how you're dealing with the sort of uncertainty that, that you have to deal with. And part of it, we're dealing with it like everybody else. We we're we're selling tickets. We're, we're pretending it's going to happen. We're hoping it's going to happen, but we're also saying, guys, it may not happen. We, for example, we have a cutoff date in late April where we'll know, is this happening or not? 
And if not, then people get their tickets transferred to 2022, just like they got them transferred from 2020 to 2021. And at some point that will will come to an end. So, so part of it is this low-key practical, you plan, you hope, but you also keep a back door open because we know things may not work out. The second is that we have an incredibly strong community and we do what we can to keep that community alive both before the pandemic and during and after there's like micro events and there's a, a, a monthly kind of a full moon call. And we have a, a small under organization called the call of the wild or the order of the wild that helps nonprofits with things like sustainability issues and with kind of taking some of the big problems in the world and applying volunteer workers with experience design lenses to do that. So uh, one of the things we've been doing has been a, a rewilding project in Romania with WWF that said, we have this area, we don't really know how to do something with it, but we know what we want to do or, or where we want to go. And then people from our community say, I'm going to put in free hours of my time. I design escape rooms and somebody's a graphic designer, somebody's a filmmaker and somebody's a... Shapes, uh, uh, shapes women's underwear, Victoria's Secret, actual job description. and. Then they they put together a project and a, a group, and then they help the WWF guys. So there is there is all sorts of ways to still be connected. So the event is not just an event. Right. And the whole idea really is to provide people with a unique networking experience in addition to this uh, experience design learning platform. So it's also really good because you're expanding your network and not with those like-minded individuals that you're going to see at every other conference anyways, quite frankly. Right. So it's not really, you're not missing out on anything by not going to another lawyer's conference or engineer's conference or, or doctor's conference or whatever conference your field of, of business is in. So what can people expect this year? It sounds like you missed out a little bit on the 2020 opportunity, obviously because of COVID-19. So are you looking to go really, really big this year? Or is it just going to be obviously a unique experience, which it sounds like each one of these events is, but is there something that people can expect in terms of this is going to be a really big shebang because we're bringing it all back together? Actually, no, because it's, it's, I mean, we could, of course, try to hype and say bigger than ever, but, but we cap it. it. It's a small event. This is like, uh, I think we have room for 80, 90 participants, something like that. And we keep it small on purpose because you go to a conference with a thousand people, you'll hear some speakers. They might be great. If you're really lucky, you get to use one minute with a speaker, five minutes, then it's extreme. And you meet some other people and you get to talk to them, but you get lost in the kind of in the overall, where here we find that somewhere between 50 and 100 people, it's big enough that you're not stuck with people. You can always move on to more people, but you also have a chance to connect and you'll not know everybody when you're done, but you'll go out with maybe 10 new actual friends, maybe five, maybe 15. And the people who are doing the workshops, who are leading the, the kind of sub events or who are doing the happenings, whatever, they're right there. They're not the guy on stage and you can stand in line and have a question as number 26. You can say, hey, that was really great. Do you have time to spend half an hour on, on talking more? And they say, yeah, that's great. Let's, uh, let's find a quiet place in the castle and look at the view and, and talk about whatever it is that's on the agenda. And that kind of that small, that access to these people, connecting them, empowering them, but also the access that last time I got to sit down for one and a half hours on like a small boat 
moored near the forest and talk about theme park design with a woman who does theme parks. And I was like, that's amazing. Where else would I get to talk with somebody like that for one and a half hours, just the two of us, far ranging conversation. Very, very cool. Very, very cool. So going back to your initial, you know, you talk, you're talking with your colleagues on a flight, you're coming up with this concept you obviously decide, okay, this has got to be an extraordinary experience if it's going to be this college of extraordinary design, right? Uh, I'm sorry, college of extraordinary experiences. So when you're coming up with that, where do you start from? Because obviously you look at the horizon and you say, we want to do something really amazing and really extraordinary, obviously. And did you choose the castle right away, the castle concept right away? How did you find the castle to then allow you to host this event? How did you get all of your funding together? What was the the nitty gritty, the business formula that you had to work through to get yourself to where you are today? I love that. And I love that that's a question. So thank you for that because we, we rarely get nitty gritty. So thanks on that. So the castle we had already because we were doing the College of Wizardry live action role play event there which had exploded onto the scene in 2015 and had gotten worldwide media attention, first time ever a live action role play event and got that. So we were doing the most famous live action role play event on the planet at the time. So we had a production team, we had a crew. And then I met Paul who came as a participant. I'd met him at a speaker at an event where we were both speaking. And then we said, let's use this to do something different for a different group. But we had the castle. So all the logistics practical, we had that already available. We just needed to rent it and, and set the dates, et cetera. So that made it easier. The second was we called our networks and then we built a house of smoke and mirrors. So essentially we, we because we knew that people go to things because other people go to them. Of course. I mean, you read from the participant list at the beginning. That's real. That's that's what gets people excited. So we thought, who are interesting people in our network? People who won are cool and like, like sit down with them and they'll contribute with something. They're not just empty titles. Two, have interesting titles. Three, preferably from interesting organizations. So I called a friend who works at Lego. I poked uh, my stepfather, for example, who's a professor of computer science and pretty big name in the whole object-oriented programming community. We talked to, I talked to a friend at Disney, that sort of thing. And then at some, we started building this, this roster of people and the more we built that, the easier it became to get the next person on board. And then once we had the first 20 or so and our co-founders, we, we had three co-founders who were like our, our shadow founders who mainly lent their, their weight and support to the idea. And one of them was Joe Pine, who's kind of one of the grandfathers of the experience economy and helped coin the term back in the late 90s. Another is Mark Ordesky, who the, was the executive producer of the Lord of the Rings trilogy. And his business partner, Jane Fleming, who's done TV shows and films, et cetera. So we had some weight along with our own names. And then we built that roster and then we released it and said, we're doing this thing. Do you want to come and meet these people? And of course, some people grabbed, grabbed onto that. And we put the tickets pretty expensively so that if everybody was working for free, which we knew might be a thing, we didn't need to sell that many tickets for it to work. And we managed to do so just enough to scrape by. And but then after the first one, then we had footage, we had testimonials, we had community, and then we did it again and we did it again. 
And now it's its own self-running thing. It has a very strong community of a couple of hundred people. It has some reputation out there. There's a lot of nice material. People get excited when they look at it and say, oh, this seems fun. This seems interesting. So we didn't start there, but but we we built that pretty quickly. And now, of course, we just try to, we just got into the kind of break-even point and getting rid of our debt-ridden past. And, and we're looking to 2020 as the, the first year where we might actually draw some salary or at least not have to, uh, to kind of uh, struggle just to pay the bills. And then... COVID hit. Yeah. As, as with anything, right. The world throws you curveballs, and you got no choice, but to, uh, to, to respond, but, uh, but you can control how you react. And I think you're, you're an example of that. And, and I appreciate that. I hope the listeners are appreciating that as well, because that positivity and saying, you know, Hey, this is just another, you know, you, you take two steps forward, one step back. That's frequently how it goes. And you just, sometimes you have to sidestep a little bit. Sometimes you have to pivot. I love in your business model, how many lessons there are for people to take for any business, quite frankly, because you look at the horizon, you say, we want to do this big and bombastic sort of thing. How do we do it? And we look at what are our resources that we already have? What are we already doing? And what can we leverage that we currently have in our back pocket? You already had the relationship with the castle. You already had some connections to some of these people. And then you look at who are the connections in their network. And very smartly, you said, to get people here, we need to find a way to captivate them. We need to make sure that we're providing them with an experience that they'll want to tell others about. And that is really the core lesson, I think, from the College of Extraordinary Experiences. And that is what you need to look at in your own business. Klaus, thank you so much for your time on our podcast. How can people reach out to you aside from going to extraordinary.college, which we'll post a link to in the show notes of this episode? How else can people reach out to you if they're curious or if they have any questions for you? So I'm one of those rare people that for better and worse, I'm the only one of my kind. So if you search Klaus Rosted, there is just me and you will end up down a rabbit hole of books and my I'm doing 100 innovation keynotes right now. There's a ton of stuff out there with my name on it. Some of it might be weird, but it's out there. So I'm pretty easy to find. I have a solid digital footprint. And if you want to hit me up, I mean, I'm on LinkedIn. I have, let's just say I live on klauswasser.com and I'm easy to find if you want to, to hit me up. And with that, also Thank you for having me. It's been a pleasure to to get to discuss this sort of stuff in this sort of context. Likewise, it was a, a huge pleasure, and I, I look forward to staying connected with you, and hopefully to joining you in Poland sometime soon as well. This sounds like such a cool experience. I, uh, I I'm almost dying for the opportunity, to be honest. Let's make sure that we can have the opportunity without the dying. That's the whole stress <laughs> right now, isn't it? <laughs> but now I hear you. I hear yeah. you, and thank you. Yeah, awesome, Klaus. Thanks very much. Have a good one.